0: this message comes from npr sponsor bank of america we're all shopping for essentials online these days with the bank of america cash rewards credit card you can choose to earn three percent cash back on online shopping essentials visit bankofamericacom slash more rewarding copyright 2020 bank of america corporation
1: oh, cameras take one
0: i'm bob boylan with all songs considered 50 years ago today, on January 30th, 1969, the Beatles played on the rooftop of the Apple offices in the heart of London, delighting, angering, and mystifying the crowd down below. This concert that many heard, but few could actually see, turned out to be the last time the Beatles ever played for an audience. Few people were actually on the rooftop for that performance. It was mostly the film and sound crew recording the Beatles for a documentary that would later be called Let It Be. This concert on the roof was to be the closing scene. Today we talk with one of the few dozen people who actually witnessed that final concert by the Beatles. Ken Mansfield was the former U.S. manager for Apple Records. He's just written and released a book called The Roof, The Beatles' Final Concert. We begin this conversation by painting a picture of where the Beatles were in January of 1969, having just released what we know as The White Album.
1: The White Album was just uh, such a monumental project that uh, I was in L.A. with George uh, Harrison, and he heard the masters that Capitol had done. He was very dissatisfied with them. So he went in the studio and started remastering himself, and he told me, he said, Ken, this project was just so big. It was just overwhelming. We actually uh, maybe took on more than we could handle with this, and he said, I'm so worn out with it that I just want to get this thing wrapped up. So then, like, a month or so after that, they start the um, Let It Be project, which after all they went through on the White Album, uh, here they go, they're going to do a project that's a film, it's a recording, it's going to be a concert, uh, maybe even a TV show, I'm not sure about that or something. But they went right back into something that was very stressful for them, and uh, a lot of dissension in the group over various things.
0: And they're about how old at this point? They're late 20s. Uh,
1: They're in their late 20s. (laughs) You know, there's still young men doing all these fabulous things. As I look back, it's hard for me to think that they're just like in their late 20s.
0: I actually just had this conversation this morning with someone. Just the idea that all of this happened to these bunch of people, and they didn't even be 30 by the time it was all over. (laughs) It's just remarkable. Absolutely. I know. What brought you to London and tell people? What your job was?
1: I was a district promotion manager at Capitol Records. I started there at the beginning of 1965, and I had no idea that eight months later I would be working with the Beatles when they came on their tour to America. I was this young Hollywood guy, you know. I had a suntan, I had a Cadillac convertible, a house up in the Hollywood Hills with a pool. And I was kind of the kind of image that they had when they were growing up in Liverpool, you know, the image they had of, of California and <laughs> all that. <laughs> and so I, in a way, and this is not a, a ego thing or a big deal thing, it's just that they were kind of fascinated with me. And, uh, of course, I was fascinated with them, with the way they talked and the clothes they wore and all that. And they had a day off after we worked uh, the one day doing the press conferences and stuff like that. They said, hey, why don't you come on up to the house? We have a day off and we can, you know, learn more about California because John wanted to know about uh, where Mulholland Drive was and somebody wanted to know how far they were from Grauman's Chinese Theater. Just all these, you know, <laughs> tourist questions and that kind of thing. And so I spent the afternoon with them and for some reason, and well, I know the reason is we hit it off is because, and this is a confession, Bob, but I didn't, quite get it why the Beatles were so famous I mean they were great and all that but my gosh and uh, so I wasn't in awe of them and I was relaxed with uh, relaxed with them and uh, I was kind of a hot shot so you know I thought I was kind of a big deal anyway so it was just (laughs) it was just very natural to be together so they came back in uh, in uh, 66 we did the same thing again another tour But I thought during this time that, you know, I got something going here with the biggest band in the world. This is going to lead somewhere great someday. And I didn't hear a word for two years. I mean, not a word. And uh, during that two years, I would moved up in capital. Then two years later, Ron Cass, who was the president of the New Apple called uh, Stanley Gordico, the president of Capitol uh, Records, and said uh, the lads want Ken to come over and help him set up the label over here and and set up the launch in America and and then run the label for us from America. So next thing I know, I'm on an airplane a few days later with Stanley Gordico, headed to London for the first time.
0: The age difference roughly between you and them when you met, you were about how old?
1: I was three years older than the oldest and five years older than the youngest, something like that. Okay. So wasn't that um, I met different, You different? Oh gosh, no.
0: And then just for people who <laughs> might think that Apple is a computer company, uh <coughs> so the Beatles were on Capitol Records. They wanted to start their own business. Part of it was taxes. They were losing ninety cents out of every dollar to yeah. uh, to to yeah. go paying for taxes. So it was kind of a inspired by you know, trying to like not give all your money away to the to the British exactly. government. But tell us some of the crazy ideas besides putting out some music what they were trying to accomplish with Apple records and the company well
1: you know the in the in the beginning uh, this was a really unusual concept because they were taking a company and trying to control all their assets instead of having somebody else you know get this part of the pie and that part of the pie they really set up the model for some of the modern corporations today have followed that in a way getting everything in one place but they were all over the place when it started they started up a clothing store and there was you know they were just going to be all these different ventures they were going into they hired magic alex to do inventions for them and they were just going to do everything so it was a little confusing at first but didn't take long for things to kind of melt down to the purpose of the company, and that was to be, you know, a record company and a publishing company and control their own finances.
0: And so you get on a plane, you go to London. Uh, What were you going
1: to London for? I was going over there to uh, meet with them to set up uh, the record company's initial launch. And, you know, at that time, and probably maybe still today, America was 50% of all record sales worldwide. So... The focus was aimed on launching the label in America, and that was the whole purpose for uh, the meetings over there was to set up promotions of uh, the records we were going to release, uh, the merchandising, just everything in, in launching the record label in America and, of course, for the world following that, but... Uh, they needed uh, somebody who knew America, and that's you know I was promotion manager, I was artist relations, uh, in merchandising all these aspects at Capitol. That's why I was brought over, and the guys were just great. They were really excited about being businessmen, and Paul had told me he said, you know, we can't be more number one. We can't. Ha- We've accomplished everything possible that we could, you know, as a band, and uh, they really liked the idea of now being businessmen. Uh, Bob, they bought a building on uh, Savile Row, one of the most exclusive streets in in London, in Mayfair, which is, you know, the tops of as far as areas in London. And they were doing everything right. And they hired Ron Cass, who was a a seasoned and just wonderful executive for them. And they just, they wanted to do everything right. So the meetings we had were just very formal. They came on time. They, uh, I joke, I say that it's almost like they had uh, white polyester shirts, short-sleeved shirts with a little plastic thing in the pocket with their pens. You know, they came to do business, and the questions are very forward, very well-thought-out things, and uh, probably the same as if I was sitting in Capitol and having executive meetings there I was doing in London. Same kind of feeling, because they were the four owners of the company. They were the four, you know, presidents. So it was just like an executive meeting.
0: Though, though some of the ideas that I gather, I mean, here there are in the middle of recording this film, "Let It Be." Some of the ideas that must have come out, which is, how about if we do a
1: concert in the Sahara?
0: <laughs> or, or yeah, I mean, that's yeah. not your
1: normal day-to-day no. meeting. Well, the thing was, is uh, that was part of the film was the, to conclude the film with a live performance because they hadn't performed for two years, and so that was the whole idea was to end the film with the performance. Well, they kept coming up with these ideas about, you know, Tunisia, an island off Tunisia or something, or in a flour mill or uh, in the Colosseum. and Mal Evans, who worked with them in London, called me and said, uh, hey, they also want to look at doing this concert in a a desert. So uh, Mal was assigned to look at a Sahara desert for a spot, and I was supposed to look to see about a desert in America. You know, if you think about how crazy this idea was, they were going to set up in a desert, and invite every kid in America, in the world. I mean, to come for free, just come see the Beatles play live. Yeah, not? can you imagine? Try- oh. Yeah, can you imagine trying to underwrite the insurance on that, or, or more more than that? How about seeing getting that many porta potties out there? You know, fan <laughs> stuff so, Anyway, the ideas were crazy. What happened was that they finally just ran out of time, and things were kind of crazy there. And somebody said, "We just need to go up on the roof." get away from everything we don't have to pay for all kinds of crew and equipment going someplace and hotels and organizations you know will we'll just uh well Now there's about seven people have taken credit for this <laughs> so uh i've heard various uh, various stories i think most people feel it was probably michael lindsey hogg because he you know he wanted to he get the film, film director, done and man, yeah. yeah he was a film director and i think that of all the stories that I've heard, his seems the most logical to me. But I don't know, you know, for sure.
0: So the prep to bring them up to the rooftop. I mean, you got to get all the gear up there. I, I'm imagining there's not a big, wide-open doorway. So how do
1: they do this? <laughs> no, in fact, you know, you're five stories up, and the last, the last floor, uh, going up the roof was just a small stairwell or ladder or whatever you want to call it. And it had a bend in it. And they could get everything up there except Billy Preston's uh, keyboard, and they just could not get that up there. So they actually, uh, Mal Evans had the idea of removing the skylight on the ceiling, and they pushed it up through that, and then they got it up there, and then they had to reassemble everything in case of rain or anything like that. But uh, that's how they got it up there. Do you have a sense of
0: what the Beatles thought of this idea? And then paint the picture of what it was like to be there. But first... What do you think was in their minds? Like, walk through each of the Beatles and their expressions, their feelings, the emotions.
1: Well, you know, this was a a time of uh, dissension, if if we should use that word. I don't think any of the Beatles wanted to go on the road with each other for the time to do this. And I just um, think there was a sense of disunity at that time. This was just an easy answer to it, just to get it over with. Because my understanding is, that they didn't go on the roof until a few seconds before they were standing at the door to go onto the roof and they didn't really decide to go out for sure until that time and then john said like okay screw it let's go out and get this done it took them about two days the people at apple to build the platforms up there to make enough room for them so it was all ready to go the equipment was up there but the only thing that wasn't there was were the beetles I just think they they wanted to get it over with. They wanted to get it done. They wanted to put all this behind them.
0: By the way, we didn't mention Billy Preston was a keyboardist that was invited into the sessions. Old friend of the Beatles. They'd known him from the long back in in the days of of, uh, small clubs and stuff. So the world's greatest band is about to play on the rooftop of... So of this, how yeah. many story, like four, what story? Five story five building. Five story building. Yeah. Overlooking yeah. the business district, the, the kind of more stuffy business people. Yeah. I, I would think that everybody and their brother would want to be up on that roof. You see footage from Let It Be and it's it's only a handful. You're a lucky soul to have been there
1: yeah the roof wasn't meant for that much equipment and that many people so they put the planks for an area let's say about 12 by 15 feet or something like that the only people in that sweet spot right close were the four Beatles, billy preston a couple sound guys and a couple film guys and michael lindsey hogg and then there were four other people up there and that was uh yoko maureen starkey uh ringo's wife chris odell who was peter asher's assistant and myself and we were the only four people that were allowed up there so we were the audience and we had no purpose other there than just sitting there and listening to them, uh, but there were in the sweet spot maybe about 12 people and then in the surrounding part of the roof there were maybe a total of 20 people all together but it looks like in some pictures like there's tons of people but they were actually on adjoining roofs that was right that you know right next door so it looked like they were up there too but There was really only about 12 of us in the sweet spot and 20 people all together up there at that time.
0: Incredible. Do you think that they were worried about the weight? that it was dangerous? Do you think that was some
1: of it? Yeah. In fact, even at that, being worried about it, they didn't really do maybe all the homework they should have done on stress levels and all that kind of stuff. But Peter Asher's office was directly below the roof. And uh, they had actually put timbers and braces up there so it wouldn't fall through to Peter's office. And so that's why the amount of people was limited. But another thing, Bob, is this, in a way, and this is hard to imagine, this was really another day at the office. I mean, there were so many things going on there all the time. Uh, It was so chaotic, so many fascinating, fabulous things going on that some of the people at Apple didn't even try to get up. I mean, here's Neil Aspinall, who was never more than three or four feet away from the Beatles at all time, you know, starting out as a roadie and then being an executive. But he was always everywhere that the Beatles were. He went and had a dental appointment that day. And some of the people, you know, like I said, didn't even bother to try to get up there.
0: I didn't see George Martin up there, someone I would think would have been the Beatles producer.
1: No, George wouldn't go near the place. He he was so afraid they were going to get busted by the police, and he didn't want to be part of that. And he stayed down in the basement with the recording studio. When he heard the police were coming, somebody said that he just, like, turned white or something. He was just so afraid of getting caught up in something like that. But he definitely wasn't going to go up on the roof and then have tried to escape down five flights of stairs. <laughs> Oh, somebody else that was up there, I'm sorry, that I did left out was Alan Parsons, who, uh, you know how famous he is and all that. He was a 19-year-old kid making his bones that day. I was up there as a suit and then later on became a recording a producer. And people used to say, well, who's your favorite producer or engineer? And I said, well, Alan Parsons, I think, is the greatest. And they said, well, have you ever met Alan? And I said, no, I never got to. And then years later, I'm at an Alan Parsons concert, and we start talking to each other and realize that we were on the roof together. And so we were bonded immediately by that, you know, well, my gosh, you know, it's like two guys are in a foxhole together or something. I can't hide, oh no, no, oh no,
0: yeah, yeah, I'm gonna be like, a- the band start playing, they're, I mean, it's January, they they're, Cold. You could see them bundled up. Describe what they were wearing.
1: Describe the scene. It was, you know, think about this. Uh, downtown London, uh, January 30th, top of a five-story building. Uh, we actually had very little protection up there for the wind, and it was cold. John had uh, this fur coat. That he and Yoko, there was two coats they shared all the time, but John took the fur coat, the warmest coat, to the concert, and um, Ringo... Took Maureen's coat, changed coats with her, because I guess Maureen's was warmer. Yeah, like and a big red George, raincoat on playing drums. Well. Yeah, and then George though he was prepared. He's the only one that you know was prepared for the cold. And I still can't get over when I look at the picture to see Paul up there in a, just a suit. Yeah, that's all he had. He didn't have a jacket. He didn't have anything. He just had a suit. And he didn't look... He's the only one that probably didn't look cold the whole time. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was really cold up there. And uh, so Yoko and I and Maureen and Chris are huddled against this chimney. And it looks like we are doing that for warmth. But it was not an acting active uh, chimney. It was just a, kind of a windbreak. And we were seated four to six feet away. Uh, we were the audience.
0: Tell me about the music that day. They, play, they played all... all, all- What were new songs to the world, yeah, except one after 909, which nobody knew. It had never come out. It was an old
1: old song. Yeah, that was kind of a redo of something they tried to do before. Had you heard any of these songs yet? Uh, Only when I was down in the studio, you know, with them earlier when they were working on songs, and I can't remember which ones they were. The songs were were fresh. Uh, When they started playing... And Bob, this is the moment of all the time I'd spent with the Beatles and working with Apple. This is the one single moment that is something I'll treasure forever is, they started playing and John looked over at Paul or Paul looked over at John and I was just like four to six feet away and I saw this look on their face. It was like, you know what, this is us. It doesn't matter what's going down and all the problems and everything is happening or something. This is who we are. We're mates, we've been together. For so many years, we've been through things people, no other people have experienced. And we are a good rock and roll band and that's what we are and that's what we're doing right now. And you look at that performance and man, they start having a good time like a live show. You know, John's throwing out these one-liners and they're they're just rocking out and having a good time. And I think to see that moment After seeing kind of the other stuff that was coming down and kind of how tense maybe some things were, was just to see them like they may have been in the cavern when they were having a good time and just playing for fun. I think something special happened to them. I wrote in the book that they came up on the roof without a sound check, but they walked back down with a soul check. (laughs) I think they needed that that moment just to touch on for a while and I think the roof did it. 40, yeah, 42 moons.
0: Uh, they did uh, a number of songs a couple of different times, Get Back a few different times. And, yeah. But as they're doing the performance, a different tension formed. Police started coming up. Describe what was going
1: on there. Well, that's been blown up to be way much more than it really was. Uh, Mal Evans had locked the door downstairs it's, uh, so we wouldn't have anybody bother us, but there became so much pressure from the street, from the businessmen and stuff like that that uh, mal went down and let the police in and he talked to him and mal you know is a very gentle uh, nice guy and uh, so he let a couple of them come up he had it all worked out with him and they got up there and they waited and you can look at a picture you can see mal and standing there with one of the policemen standing beside him these guys got to see the Beatles on the roof up close and it was an exciting thing for them and it was almost like mal was saying okay now go ahead and arrest him now because we got what we wanted you know that kind of a situation there was no big fault nobody was going to get arrested or anything like that and one of the policemen pulled the plug on the amp i guess and but it was a lot to be lot made out of that and it wasn't really that dramatic or traumatic or anything like that
0: and one of paul's uh, last singing yeah. lines was
1: <laughs> and something about you're going to uh, get in trouble with mama or something. I don't know. On, yeah. I that.
0: Yet. Yeah, get back. You've been out too long, Loretta. You've been playing on the roofs again. And that's no good. Because you know your mommy doesn't like that. Oh, well, she gets angry. you going to have you rest get back. Oh, get back. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> You've been playing on the roof again, right? Mama's going to get angry. <laughs>
0: Could you tell what was going on in the street from where your vantage point? Did you have a sense of people down there either both loving or uptight about it?
1: No, I, we, you know, we couldn't see them and they couldn't see us. All I know is what I heard later. One of the guys who worked at Apple came in and said he came around the corner and he said there was this wall of sound <laughs> coming down Sawville Row, and uh, the, the streets were blocked and people were standing there looking up and that people knew who it was, they just didn't know what was going on, and they, they were mesmerized. Some, there was people that were mad because of the traffic, there were businessmen you know, who were mad, there were other people this, just knowing that they were experiencing somebody, and for the rest of their lives they'll say, hey, I was there that day. It was just this real mixture of, of responses and things down there from what I understand. This moment was what I like to call the magic moment in time that touched everybody, the fact that they got together that one last time, I think was something they needed uh, for themselves. I think it was a gift to their their fans that they got to see that. And when we left the roof that day, we walked down low and nobody talked to each other. I just went to my office and then next morning got on a plane and went back to LA and still couldn't quite figure out what I'd experienced. I didn't realize it was gonna be one of the most historical moments in rock and roll. I knew something had happened. That's beautiful.
0: You're such a great storyteller, and what a great moment in life. Thanks a lot. Cheers, my friend. Ken Mansfield, former U.S. manager for Apple Records, witness to the final Beatles concert January 30th, 1969. The book, filled with wonderful detail and stories, is called The Roof, The Beatles' Final Concert. I'm Bob Boylan for NPR Music. It's all songs considered. Yeah. I'd to say thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves, I hope we pass the audition. <laughs> <laughs>